This is a CBC podcast. I love meat. Fried chicken, burgers, steaks, ribs, roast beef, meat lovers' pizza, you name it, I'll devour it. It's just meat brings a fullness to a meal. I'll always eat the meat first, and everything else is kind of just an afterthought. I mean, you could call me the king of meats, a self-proclaimed meat connoisseur, if you will. Because to me, there's nothing better than devouring a big, juicy hamburger patty or cutting into a perfectly rare steak. But I don't get to eat beef as much as I'd like to, because my little brother, Kian, hasn't eaten it for years. We were on a trip to India, at least, I want to say, three years ago. And uh, there was a lot of, like, cows mm. where we went, or just all over. Because mm. I'd see cows in the road or just cows roaming. And just over the course of the time that we were there, the cows started growing on me because they were, like, mm. pretty cute. And sometimes I'd, like, pet them or something or give them a hug. And I just kind of developed a liking of cows because I saw that they were, like, they were just these big, peaceful creatures that just stand around. Mm. So I decided I'm not going to eat beef for like a little bit. And then I decided, this is fine. How about I just don't do this? So I just kind of stopped. Also because I knew how bad it was for the environment. Cows are pretty cute. But man, beef is just so good. I mean, what would I even eat if I couldn't eat meat? Salad? A burger that's just a piece of lettuce between two buns? And is meat actually terrible for the environment, like Kian says? I wonder if that's why I keep seeing all these meatless food ads popping up everywhere. Everyone's gonna love plant-based KFC. Have you tried the Beyond Meat Burger from a Enjoy plant-based meatballs with no compromise on taste. Try them on the mel- Fast food places are selling beefless burgers and chicken nuggets without the chicken. You can now buy milkless milk? fishless fish, even liquid eggs made from plants. But are those actually better for the environment? What's our meat consumption doing to the planet anyway? And would cutting out my favorite food group even make a difference? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you just really want to have answered. Are we alone in the universe? How reliable are our memories? How do we fix recycling? What will money look like in the future? Why do we love junk food so much? And can we keep eating meat without destroying the planet? My friends Piper and Finn haven't eaten meat for pretty much their whole lives. They're twins, but they have very different reasons for why they stopped. For me, my whole family just don't eat meat, so I was just like, might as well join the group and not eat meat either. This is a little stupid, but I was six years old, and this counselor at camp didn't eat meat, and I was like, that's a cool dude. I'm not going to eat meat either. And I never got to the point where I really wanted to eat meat after that. 
My other friends Caden and Maylin, however, still eat meat. I eat, like, I try to eat less meat than I do vegetarian and pescatarian, but I still eat meat maybe three times a week or something. Most of my diet consists of meat. Would you guys ever consider stopping eating meat? Uh, I would consider it um, just because I know that it's really bad for the environment and it's like a planetary thing. But for now, it's not really something that I control because I don't cook. No, like I'm similar. I, I'm hoping like to over time switch to pescatarian only, maybe eventually to vegetarian because it's not good for the environment and I care about animals a lot. So I always have a bit of guilt when I eat meat. I always assumed that people turned vegetarian for ethical or religious reasons, but how big is meat's impact on the environment? I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I just want to keep eating my burgers and steaks. But maybe my friends are onto something. In order to get food onto our plates, we're using an enormous amount of energy, fresh water, uh, it impacts climate change. It can impact agricultural workers and rural communities by polluting air, water, and soil. This is Brent Kim. He's a researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, where they look at how food affects our health, environment, and society. You've probably heard that scientists and global leaders have agreed that we have to limit global average temperature rise at or below uh, two degrees Celsius relative to what the temperatures were in the pre-industrial era. If we continue to increase how much meat and dairy that we're eating, by the year 2050, the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture alone will eat up almost the entire greenhouse gas emissions budget. If we don't address the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture, we could do everything else right. We could have solar panels and wind power and never fly and always take the bus. Uh, but if we don't also address agriculture, we'll be deep into the territory of the more catastrophic climate change outcomes. I know our planet's hotter than ever, and it's leading to catastrophic events like droughts, fires, huge storms, etc. And I get that humans are to blame for most of it by burning fossil fuels for power and all that. But how exactly are meat and dairy farming contributing to climate change? And is all meat bad for the environment? Or is there one particular one that's wreaking the most havoc? Yeah, that's kind of the elephant in the room, right? It's more of the cow in the room, because whenever you ask people about, you know, you know, well, I'll just ask you, what have you, when you hear about food in the environment, what's the food that you hear is the worst? Uh, it may or may not be my favorite type of meat, but <laughs> ooh, I'm going to go, you know, probably based on your analogy of the cow in the room, I'm going to take a wild guess and just say beef, you know? <laughs> I guess I kind of gave it away with the analogy. It is the case that, in general, meat from ruminant animals which are animals that have multiple stomachs, which include cows and bison, tends to be the most greenhouse gas intensive. And one of the reasons for that is that they have a unique digestive process called enteric fermentation, where there are bacteria in their stomachs that help break down fibers, which is a fantastic way for those animals to convert something that we can't eat, which is grass, 
into something that people can eat, like meat and milk. One of the downsides of that, however, is that that process of digestion releases methane, very potent greenhouse gas. And I think there are a lot of jokes about cow farts, but actually most of that methane comes out through the front as eructation, which is a fancy scientific name for cattle burps. <laughs> methane happens to be particularly potent compared to carbon dioxide. So the, the same mass of methane has roughly 25 times the warming effect as an equivalent mass of carbon dioxide. So if you have the same amount of it, it has a much more powerful warming effect. Who could have thought that burping cows are warming up the planet? So are the gassy cows to blame for this? Or are there like other aspects of producing meat that are also contributing to climate change? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not just about the gassy cows. I mean, there are other contributors. Um, we have to think about the way land is used um, and the amount of land that we're devoting to growing feed for animals, uh, particularly in the industrial model of food production where animals are fed predominantly on feed. Um, there's an enormous amount of land that's dedicated to that and an enormous amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with producing and harvesting and processing and transporting all of that feed that is fed to the animals. When Brent talks about an industrial approach to food production, he means large-scale farming that aims to produce as much food as possible as quickly as possible. And that sometimes means clearing enormous tracts of land and cutting down trees to raise livestock and grow crops like soy for feed. That's deforestation. And it's fueling the climate crisis because it emits huge amounts of greenhouse gases. So any kind of organic biological material, whether it's trees or plants or roots, those organisms store carbon in their tissue. So if you have a tree, that's carbon that's locked away in the tree's tissue. That if you cut down or burn down the tree, then that carbon gets released into the atmosphere. Even though deforestation is happening everywhere, it's happening in tropical regions the most, especially the Amazon rainforest. All its trees and plant life make the Amazon one of the world's biggest reservoirs of carbon. But scientists are now saying it's releasing carbon faster than it can store it, all because trees are being cut down at a faster rate than they're being replanted. One of the main drivers of deforestation in the Amazon is that they're clearing forests partly for feed, but mainly for grazing lands, for beef production in countries like Brazil. Wow, that really bums me out. To think that something like the Amazon is being burned to make our steaks and burgers. And it's not just for a little bit of beef either, because Brazil is the biggest beef exporter in the world. So what about the other costs of you know, making the food? Like, what about all the other things that have to happen to make the cow turn into a burger on my plate? It's a great question. Um, one that I think about a lot in particular um, is the impact of these production systems on people. As with industrialization, you certainly have reductions in human labor, and it produces a large quantities of food at a low price. Um, so, you know, it has been, you could argue, maybe beneficial in that regard. But at the same time, 
what we have now is a system that can be enormously detrimental to air quality um, because you have thousands, tens of thousands, millions of animals confined uh, in these indoor operations. And you have people that live uh, downwind of these facilities and they're breathing in gases like uh, ammonia and hydrogen sulfide and they're breathing in particulate matter and dust which is comprised of things like dried urine and feather and animal dander and then you have the workers who have to work inside these buildings unsurprisingly they have an extremely high rate of respiratory illness uh, you have impacts to local waterways because when you have um, several thousand pigs in a building in North Carolina you have to do something with the manure that they produce. So they pump it out into something called a manure lagoon, which is a liquid storage pit. Now, any farmer will tell you that manure is an extremely valuable source of fertilizer. It's like gold. Um, and under normal conditions, historically, we'd have animals producing a little bit of manure that comes out their backside and it fertilizes the soil. But when you have 10,000 animals in the same place and you have that much manure in one place, it's far more than the local land can absorb. And so you've taken a fertilizer and you've created a pollution problem. Well, I'll, I'll never be able to unlearn of the poop lagoon. So thank you for that. That is a strange and unfortunate byproduct. It's certainly not a place I'd want to go swimming. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Why would you even, uh, why would you even mention that? <laughs> so, uh. Sorry to put that in your mind. So what can we do differently? Are Ken and my friends right? Should we all be giving up cheeseburgers to do our part? You know, maybe the conversation doesn't have to be about meat or eliminating meat. I think the conversation could be about what can we do to put more plants on our plate? Research has consistently shown that a plant-based diet has among the lowest environmental impacts, whether that's fresh water or climate change or land use or water pollutions. But I think there are a lot of reasons why you know people may not be ready, willing, or able to make that leap to a completely plant-based diet. Um, and particularly, you know, if we're talking globally in many low-income countries that struggle with malnutrition and malnourishment, and so you might have some populations who need to eat a little bit more animal foods, but certainly in countries like the US and Canada and the UK and Australia, we're among the highest meat consuming countries in the world. So a move toward plant-based diets is urgent and essential. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to go completely plant-based. A good place to start might be something like Meatless Monday. Just one day per week, let's try cutting meat and see how that feels. You know what? Maybe one day a week doesn't sound too bad. I mean, It'd be tough for someone that's so passionate about me, but it seems like a pretty reasonable compromise. We have this idea, particularly in the United States where I'm from, where meat has to be a main course. I think there are a lot of countries that we can learn from where it's not the main course, right? It's just, it's a flavoring or it's a special treat. It doesn't have to be the main thing on our plates. I think there's already a world of plant-based protein sources that's already out there that I think deserves more attention on our plate. You know, uh, 
tofu, um, edamame, lentils and legumes and peas and so forth. And I would also say we can make a shift toward more climate-friendly types of meat. Um, some of the meats with the smallest climate impact are mealworms and crickets and other edible insects. I think a lot of scientists are saying that is a sustainable protein of the future. Um, and there are some other foods like oysters and fish that are low on the food chain, like sardines and anchovies that have a relatively small climate change impact. Okay, Meatless Mondays was maybe something I could wrap my head around. But I don't know how to feel about swapping my steaks out for cricket meat just yet. Brent says plant-based meat might be a better place to start. Alternative meats like the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, I think they have a great role for folks who are, are familiar with meat, um, maybe a little nervous about trying beans. It can be a good kind of gateway toward eating more plant-based foods. Hmm. My brother Kian loves plant-based burgers. He tried his first one just a few months after he stopped eating beef, and man, he has been hooked ever since. And even my dad will sometimes choose them over regular burgers. I've never tried one myself. I've just always gone for the beef ones because, well, they're just so good. But if eating plant-based burgers could be a way to help the planet while still being able to eat burgers, maybe it's time for a taste test. I'm I'm pretty nervous. I'm kind of nervous. Here, I'm gonna take this one because this one looks the most delicious. I want the best possible first impression. Also, Kian's here to watch. Say hello, Kiki. Hey, I'm also just gonna eat my own burger in the background. This is Thai Pool trying a big plant-based burger for the first time. Let's try it. It's not bad, but like, it just kind of, it gives you that feeling of beans. And it's not a bad thing. It tastes kind of like a burger, but the big thing is it's just, it's not juicy. It's dry, and I think without that, it takes away from the experience. And that sweetness is kind of nice, but it's like, the sweetness isn't really like beef. If I may, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I understand why you think that, but I'm just trying some from the same batch. And I don't mean to blame anyone or anything, but I, I am going to say, this doesn't taste as sweet as it normally does. Normally it's a bit more juicy. Oh, so, it's, so it's Dad's fault for overcooking the burgers. Now it's time for the ratings. Smell, 7 out of 10. Nothing out of the ordinary. Same for looks. The cross-section of the burger looked pretty close to the real thing. Seven or maybe a generous eight for taste because it did do an acceptable job of leaving that salty umami flavor in your mouth. But mouthfeel and texture is where it fell behind. I'd probably give it like a six because it just was a little too dry and crumbly. Honestly, I mean, 
I'm not a big fan of it, but I can see how like someone like Kian, I see how he can eat this and how he can be satisfied with not having a regular beef burger, you know? But it's, it's not bad. I think definitely for people that wanna try these plant-based alternatives, this is an acceptable substitute. I don't know if I'm ready to surrender my Angus beef patties just yet, but I gotta say, I was pretty impressed by the plant-based one I tried. It seemed like it was actually trying to mimic a beef burger instead of just mashing up a bunch of weird chunks of vegetables and beans. How do they do that? Hi, my name is uh, Jody Puglisi. I'm a professor of structural biology at Stanford University. I've helped uh, a number of uh, companies developing alternatives to kind of traditional agricultural products, probably most famously a company called Beyond Meat. Jody was the lead scientific advisor to Beyond Meat, the food company that makes burger patties, sausages, and ground meat from plants. They made the first beefless burger to be sold in the beef aisle at the grocery store. How did we do it? Um, it's not that complicated. We took proteins from peas, which everyone hates, but peas are rich in protein, um, as are many beans. Um, and we isolate the protein from the peas um, uh, and separate it out from the starches. Then we take that protein and we mix it with water and make like a kind of like a slurry dough. They take that dough and it goes through a process called extrusion, where it's put through a machine that's kind of like a big pasta maker. Then they heat up the proteins, squeeze it out of the nozzle, and out comes a fibrous meat-like protein. And then we take that and we chop it up. We take uh, fats that come from plants to give it the fatty component because everyone loves that fat. That's what gives flavor and juiciness to a hamburger. Um, and then we mix it with colorants and the colorants are natural pigments from vegetables such as tomato or pomegranates. And these um, colors give the red color when the uh, a hamburger is raw and then turn color, turn brown when you cook it. Um, and then finally, we add in flavorings, um, flavorings to give you that flavor profile of, of beef and the aroma of beef when you cook it. Uh, and that's really one of the hardest parts is getting that part right, because everybody's familiar with the smell um, and that flavor of ground beef when you eat a hamburger. When you cook a hamburger, even the sound of the hamburger is something everyone knows. We measured the frequency specter of a regular hamburger and tried to mimic the sound of the hamburger. Because what we want is that full sensory experience to be as similar to meat as possible. Having to eat burgers in the name of science sounds like a pretty awesome job. And the meat expert in me appreciates the dedication and attention to detail, especially since their goal was to win over the die-hard meat fans like me. Many vegetarians, uh, especially vegans, gave up meat on purpose. And so there, many of them aren't looking for a product like this, although some are missing the, the, the flavor of meat. Um, but I would say the bigger, the bigger target is, is, is actual meat eaters. Now, so I know that the like environmental impacts of regular beef is pretty bad. So how does that compare to plant-based meat? A single Beyond Burger, if that's our unit that we want to compare, um, 
would have uh, about, I would say, 99% less water usage, um, wow. consume 90, 93% less land, um, have 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, and use about half the energy as, as a beef-based burger. Those are some really impressive numbers. Yeah, it's a huge impact. It's a huge impact. You know, I, I'm not a proponent that people should eliminate meat entirely from their diets. I love eating meat. But the kind of intensive overconsumption of meat, that's a, a malady that is, is destroying the health of the world and leading to the, the lack of sustainability of the world. Jody says the plant-based food industry is only going to get bigger and more innovative in the coming years. There are already dozens of companies worldwide working on lab-grown meat, also known as cellular or cultured meat. You take the cells of beef or the cells of chicken and, or the cells of pork and you grow them in a laboratory, not in an animal. And uh, that sounds kind of weird, but the end product is meat. It's not like you have to fool somebody. And I've eaten these products and you're really eating chicken. And it tastes like chicken. Um, and it, it feels like chicken. Do you think meat alternatives will be like the meat of the future? Do you think they're going to just replace animals one day? I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, uh, my goal would be that it takes a fraction of the animal meat market. But, you know, people atavistically are, are attached to meat. But if it can take 20, 30 percent of the market, um, I think we'll, we'll, that would be a huge success. Um, and then, you know, if, if alternative ways of, of doing agriculture that are less impactful come along, I think that kind of composite solution can work for the, for the planet. Jody says when it comes to climate change, it's still important to start small because sometimes even the simplest solutions can make the biggest difference. You know, people talk about changing, you know, the energy usage of the world, and they talk about all these kind of, you know, high-end solutions. In the end of the day, one of the things that had the greatest impact was just change the light bulbs to something more efficient. There's billions of light bulbs, and you make each one a little bit more efficient, you have an impact. I like to think the same way about hamburgers. <laughs> changing hamburgers one at a time. Yep. <laughs> So it's not like I have to quit meat cold turkey to help the planet. I can start with baby steps, like skipping it once a week or opting for a plant-based version of my favorite dishes every once in a while. And who knows, maybe lab-grown meat could be the meat of the future. I've also read that researchers are looking into feeding cows seaweed to make them not burp so much. That's the kind of science that gives me hope. You see all the stuff about how they're like cutting down the Amazon rainforest just to make room for grazing and stuff. And it's really kind of, it's pushing some of the negative effects of climate change further. So how does that make you guys feel? It's a little, it's quite upsetting about like what's happening to our climate, at least for me. I like to call myself a good person and an activist. And I think that I really do try my best to do what I can for the planet because it does make me angry that this is happening. But there's only so much I can do as a 15 year old in the society. Like can't just fly down to the Amazon rainforest and like stand in front of some machine that's chopping down trees. Mei Lin makes a really good point. 
We could all do our parts as individuals by trying to eat less meat and more plants, but what about dairy and meat producers? It's not like they can just give up their income so easily. What about the big decision makers like our governments? Brent Kim has got some ideas. We need to encourage policymakers who are willing to make the kinds of changes at the local, state, and federal level to make sure that we as a society uh, are able to see a livable future for current and future generations. I think there's another avenue for change that we often forget, and that's companies and institutions. You know, if you can have an audience with the head chef of McDonald's and they agree to change their menus to be a little bit more plant forward, and that change ripples throughout every McDonald's around the world, the impact could be enormous. As it turns out, McDonald's has partnered with a company to develop their own plant-based burgers. Like Brent says, that could be huge. As individual, our individual actions, absolutely, they do matter. But climate change is a problem where we need to move together as an entire uh, society to make sure that we're creating the change that we need to see. So we all kind of have a job, you know, you, me, the fast food restaurant down the street. We, we all have a, a small part to play, but together we can get there. I love how you said it just now. Amen. Ty asked why. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. This show is produced by Eunice Kim, Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, and Judy D. Gu. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer, and the theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my dad, Min Nguyen, and my mom, Nikki Poole, is our location manager. Thanks, Dad, for always cooking my burgers perfectly. Shout out to my brother, Kian, for sharing his fondness for cows. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise, and my friends Piper, Finn, Caden, and Mei Lin for their meaty conversation. Today, my guests were Brent Kim and Jody Puglisi. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arab Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.